My name is Kian. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sober date is June 24th, 2020. Um, I just hit a thousand days. That was a pretty neat milestone for me. Um, feeling good. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've reached a, um, a feeling of stability and serenity and all that that the book promises us um, recently. But uh, it definitely wasn't always like that. Um, I guess we'll go back to um, high school for me. Uh, my first addiction was to weed. Um, I'm going to talk about that just a little bit because it was really uh, my first experience with, with addiction. Um, and it sort of segued right into the, the alcohol for me. Um, I was in a family of, you know, growers and sellers. Everyone smoked weed. It was everywhere um, and just infinitely accessible. Um, and there was a point where I couldn't go a moment um, without being high or, you know, it was every second of every day. And I didn't know how to function without it. Um, I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know how to be comfortable in my own skin, like my own body. Um, I didn't understand how people got through their day um, without, without um, smoking or drinking or doing something. Um, and I sort of like had the skewed perception. I, I sort of thought that's what it was for, you know, like I thought that everybody had this sort of um, deep discomfort all the time and that weed and alcohol and drugs and all that stuff um, was a gift for us to escape that. Um, for most people, it would be from time to time. But for me, I couldn't seem to get rid of that feeling. And so I had to do it all the time to always be suppressing that feeling. Um, but yeah, so it was weed for me to start with. And I would say it was like 15 or 16 was the first time I got drunk. Um, and it was on a bottle of Hennessy that was just sitting in my parents' room. Um, I'd been eyeing that bottle for months before. Uh, it was just sitting on top of their little mini fridge. And it was always at the same like level inside the bottle. And I was like, they're just letting this go to waste. <laughs> so I might as well, um, you know, you know, give it a go. And so I think I take a sip. And I'm like, they're not going to notice a sip. And then, you know, I take another sip and another sip and another sip. Um, and most of that bottle was gone um, by the time I was done with it. Um, and I remember at some point, like, I don't think at that point I even knew, like, what being drunk really felt like or like what it was supposed to do. And so I wasn't like, I don't know. I just remember at some point I was just hit with this wave of everything that was all the, all the negative thoughts I had about myself, about everyone else, about my situations in life, um, all of the depression and anxiety and like that discomfort I was talking about, like all of that just washed away. Um, and in that moment, I decided that that was my solution. Um, and I think the, the exact sort of phrasing that I came up with at the time was this must be uh, how everyone feels all the time, right? Like I thought that alcohol was fixing something that was already fixed in everyone else. Um, and so I thought this must be how people feel all the time. So I, I've got to do this all the time. Um, to feel that way. 
Uh, but I didn't get straight into alcohol at that time. Uh, weed was my primary, you know, drug of choice until I was about 19. I started getting these really intense uh, panic attacks and um, just sort of paranoia. And like, I, I'll call them hallucinations. There was some weird shit going on uh, with weed when I was around 19 or so. Um, and of course, you know, like, like an addict, like an alcoholic, when weed stopped working for me, I couldn't give it up right away. Um, I tried every manner of making it work for me because it, it had worked for me for so long and I was so confused why it wasn't working anymore. Um, so I tried and I tried and I tried and it got to this point where I just couldn't handle it. Um, and I, I still don't know what the cause of that was exactly, you know, physiologically, but um, my body was having an abnormal reaction to weed and so I couldn't do it anymore. Um, lucky for me, alcohol uh, was there to replace it. Um, and it just slid right into that spot, uh, for me, but yeah. So when I stopped smoking weed, alcohol became like, it, it took the exact spot that we, uh, had in my life. You know, I, I was still underage, so I couldn't get as much alcohol as I wanted. Um, but you know, I had a bunch of older siblings. They'd buy me a beer every now and then, or every time one of them came over, they'd buy me a beer. And I, I wouldn't tell them that the other one had just bought me a beer the day before, right? But so I, I get them to just keep buying me all these beers and all of a sudden I've got a, a pile of warm beer in my closet because I'm afraid of running out <laughs> um, because God knows what'll happen if I don't have, if I don't have, have that. Um, but yeah, I would say it went on like that, um, sort of getting as much as I could and hiding it and having all these like, uh, restrictions about it um, until I turned 21 and it was sort of a, a perfect storm of circumstances for me where I had just gotten a job that played that paid pretty well my first real you know grown-up job <laughs> um, and you know I had all this money to spend on alcohol um, and then boom turned 21 so I can go around the corner to get it whenever I wanted to um, and then I moved out of my parents house and so there was no one to sort of hide it from or mod, like to pretend I wasn't drinking as much as I was. Um, and so I didn't really have any of those uh, external barriers in place to like control, you know, my drinking. Um, but yeah, once those barriers were removed, I couldn't stop, um, even if I wanted to. And I definitely, by that point, I had tried to stop um a couple times you know just out of uh out of i don't know it occurred to me at some point i had gotten some really bad hangovers and i later discovered that those i would i would call that withdrawal now um but at the time i that the way i perceived it was i was getting these terrible hangovers and uh i would be like no i can't i can't drink anymore this is you know it's not worth it this feeling um you know, if, if this is what it's going to feel like after. Um, but inevitably, every time I would be like, um, I'll just have less or I'll just do it when friends are here. Or like you did that reading. We just at the beginning of the meeting, I tried everything um, to, to, to drink like a gentle person, <laughs> like a like like a, like everyone else did. Um, but it wasn't working. Um, and so after trying to stop a few times, I just decided that this was my lot in life, right? I was 
born to be an alcoholic. Um, and I was just gonna, you know, go to my dead end job and come home and black out and pass out and wake up and go to work again and get home and black out and pass out and just on and on and on and on and on. Um, for the rest of my life, I Jim figured Gates. that, thank you, Laura. Um, I, I figured that I was going to die of some, some disease related to alcoholism. I was going to get cirrhosis of the liver. Or I was going to, uh, my heart was going to give out or something like that. Um, you know, sometime down the line. And it was really, it was, it, I don't know um, if at that time, I don't think I was scared of that at that time. I had just sort of accepted that that was what life was going to look like for me. Um, I was going to live an alcoholic life and die an alcoholic death. Um, and I wasn't scared of it at the time, but now it scares me that I wasn't scared of it then. Um, because I can't imagine living that way today. Um, but yeah, I think it was really in, in 2020, I checked myself in a rehab four times in a row uh, in the first half of 2020, um, because I had gotten to this really low emotional bottom. I was just depressed, suicidal, like I couldn't uh, sustain that, that way of living for, for any longer. And it was really in those attempts at sobriety that I became convinced that I was an alcoholic. Um, if I wasn't convinced enough before. Um, because as long as I didn't admit to needing help, if I didn't do those, uh, reach out to those people or participate in those programs or, or get involved in AA or anything like that, as long as I was cut off from that side, from recovery and from hope and possibility, then I didn't have to I could be content in this idea that it was never going to change. But once I was exposed to the program and people who have been where I was and live such a different lives now, um, and everyone was describing these feelings that I had in such detail, like in words that I didn't have yet to describe those feelings and the way that I drank. Um, once I saw that, there was no going back to that sort of acceptance of, of death and institutions and hospitals and all that like and yeah so i i am eternally grateful to AA. i by the time i got in here i was given a gift of desperation um and i was willing to do whatever it took to recover um because i couldn't i just couldn't live the way i was living anymore um and i trusted these people um, in these rooms, like, I, it took me a while to really come around to the book and the steps and, you know, all the writing, um, because I really didn't, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing myself in that writing and those people that that represented, the, you know, the AA, the big book, original text, um, but the people in these rooms spoke so earnestly about it, and they promised me that this is what they did uh, to get sober, and I trusted them, right? So I didn't have to buy into everything immediately. I just, there was, at this point, what I had heard from those people, there was no way, there was no reason for me not to trust them and I had no other option but to trust them. And so I did and it worked out. Um, and now like coming up on three years sober, I, I just, I can't contain it. I, I can't contain um, 
the gratitude of what this program has done for me and yeah i'm just i'm just happy to be here and if you're new like stick around get a sponsor talk to people like it's all here like it's it's every, everything you're looking for is here um and being here in this moment this is the right place to be um and i think that's all i've got to say i think i'm up on time so thank you very much for inviting me my name is alice i'm an alcoholic hi everybody kian thank you so much what a compelling lead that was it's so fun to speak at a meeting with you i don't know as i've ever heard your share and i related so much to it but i will not spend the next 35 minutes just talking to you um uh, I was really nervous and now I just feel really excited. And an early sponsor of mine once told me that being nervous and being excited were physiologic analogs. So that's what I'm going to go with. So my name is Alice and I am an alcoholic. And what that means for me is that I have each of the three parts of the disease that our big book lays out. I always try to remember to centralize the book as much as I can when I share because this is not my opinion, Anonymous. We're a fellowship named after our central text. AA is basically a book club where we talk about the same book every week. Um, and so our book describes alcoholism as a threefold disease. I have the physical allergy, which means that if you put a sip of beer in me, I'm the kind of alcoholic like drinking the vinegar out of your fridge at 4 a.m. because there's nothing left at the party and doing as much of your bag as I can get away with and then throwing money at you to call your guy to get some more. And I have the mental obsession, which means that without a functioning solution in my life, I am fucking obsessed with relief via whatever means I can acquire it. And so I will use anything at all to make myself feel better. And if I am not abstinent from drugs and alcohol, that's a really low hanging lever to pull at all times. I will just be a fiend unless I can access um, something to get me out of myself, something to change the way that I feel about myself, my relationships, my circumstances, the characteristics of my life. I just want out of here. I'm really an escape artist, if nothing else. And I have the third part of the disease, which is the spiritual malady. And this is a spiritual program. We talk a lot about God, here in California, we usually couch that within the whole God thing. When we, you know, you can do the ocean or the universe or your ancestors or a doorknob or people say lots of weird shit. Um, and I don't think of the spiritual malady in terms of having a religion deficiency so much as I think of it as a malady of my spirit. I am fundamentally fucking unwell unless I am taking action to improve my spiritual fitness, the well-being of my spirit. And it really, for me, spoiler alert, at the end of my share, you will see that I use God these days. Um, without a higher power present in my life, it's an emergency. I am in crisis. I am not doing well. I am a comfort-seeking missile. I am a bull in a china shop. I could just list and endless stream of metaphors to describe how miserable I am and how miserable it is to be around me. Um, my sobriety date is December 15th, 2015. God willing, that means I have today. 
I have multiple sponsees. I have multiple service commitments. I have a sponsor who knows she's my sponsor. I have been continuously working the 12 steps since I came into this program a little over seven years ago. But I don't share my stats to brag to you about how big my recovery dick is. I say all of this just to let you know what helps me stay in the game. These, I work an active program. I regularly attend meetings. I'm always on the phone with an alcoholic. It's the bright spot of my day every time. Um, and these things help me remember who I am and what I have to do because I really and truly believe with my entire heart that this program living this way is my best chance at a happy and purposeful life. <clears throat> so I guess I will tell you what I was like, what happens and what I'm like now. I was a really unhappy kid. I had a pretty hard childhood. There was a lot of drama and trauma in my younger years. And I don't really know. Some people will say like, oh, I was an alcoholic in the sandbox. I needed a drink by age five. Um, I'm not so sure about that, mostly because I wasn't drinking at age five, so I can't know for sure. But I do know that I drank normally twice in my life in pretty typical average teenage kind of terms. You know, someone bought a bottle that got like eight of us drunk and we had only had half of it. Um, and then we all took a nap and woke up and went to a party that night. And it was just like cases and cases and cases of Bud Light. And at that stage in the game, I didn't like beer. I'm doing air quotes for those of you tuning in uh, to the podcast. And so I stayed sober at the party because there wasn't something that I liked the flavor of, which was not the case for too much longer than that. And then the second time I was invited to my high school girlfriend's house and we drank a little bit of gin and then she got sick. So I like put her to bed and went home and it was just pretty normal stuff. I remember both times the feeling of becoming sober again, which later on would be completely intolerable to me because like Kian said, when I was under 21, it was harder to come by alcohol, especially where I grew up. They were pretty strict about carting people. And it was just, it was much easier to get drugs, honestly. Um, so I couldn't always get the unlimited supply that I later would require. And the feeling of resuming sobriety, resuming, um, getting less drunk and becoming sober felt like a terrible calamity that I needed to address immediately. But anyway, these first two times, it was pretty normal, pretty pedestrian. And then things took a turn for the horrible. And I kind of ran away from my mom's house. I kind of had been being groomed by a friend of the family. And so I left when I was 16 and moved in with her. And within like two weeks of that happening, she began sexually abusing me. And she would provide me with alcohol every single day. Um, it was a way for me to be less resistant, I suppose. I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what her motives were, but that's my guess. And so I started living this really fractured and fragmented and fucked up teenage life where at night I had this inappropriately adult life, kind of living like a grown-up. And then 
in the morning, like I would show up to homeroom my junior year of high school, hungover and failing my classes and, you know, doing drugs in the bathroom at lunch. I was one of those girls who smoked cigarettes in the bathroom. Um, And I felt like I didn't fit either place. I felt like I didn't really match the other teenagers, but I also didn't really want the grown-up world that I had been thrust into either. And it was awful. And I was there at this house with the woman who was abusing me for five months. And then the police became involved and I was removed and everyone in my family was told and it was horrible. And I remember they put me in the hospital for a little while, long story short, to keep me safe um, so that people could monitor like who was trying to communicate with me and where I was and Anyway, I remember being in the hospital and one of the nurses handed me a composition notebook the first morning I woke up there. And I remember just like carving into the pages with a pencil. When I get out of here, I'm going to do hard drugs. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to be a fuck up because, you know, I was in this very controlled, sterile facility and I had no access to change. I mean, I had no access to change anything about the way I feel except the way I felt, except that I would like, you know, hook up with other girls in the hospital, in the bathroom. And then I got put on bathroom restriction and I tried um, just to stop eating. I just was bent on getting out of my situation any way that I possibly could escape like the four walls of my brain. But I remember when I left the hospital, that was it. And I just, I just was pedaled to the metal full speed ahead, trying to destroy myself because, excuse me, I couldn't bear existing in the life that had been created and also destroyed simultaneously all around me. And I couldn't stand living in my body, which felt like a crime scene at that point. You know, I was like having police interviews about where and how I had been touched. It was just fucking awful. And I was placed back at my mom's house. Um, And it kind of felt like everyone in my family was very ashamed that I had had this like inappropriate lesbian experience and they just you know this wasn't the kind of thing that happened in families like ours and so no one really talked about it ever again and that was kind of the last straw for me where it felt like I didn't even have a home or a family to return to and I had no I had no support but I also just had no container to be the person that I was just flailing through the abyss in free fall and so I I, you know kept true to my plan and I just was a fuck up. I started selling drugs. I started sneaking girls into my room. I crashed the car like three or four times that summer. I just was, I was in crisis and it didn't feel like I had anybody around me asking, not even asking how I was doing, but realizing that I wasn't doing great. Um, Within a year, my mom kicked me out. I lived with my dad for a while. I just, it was really terrible and really lonely. And I felt like, you know, for the rest of my life, 
the happiest I have grown to become and the most loved and supported that I now feel that I am, I will never be able to scrub from my memory what it felt like to be that teenage version of myself and feel completely alone in the world. And I felt this perverse sense of freedom because I just felt separate from everybody and everything in the world. And like, it didn't matter what I did. I could do anything. That was the perverse sense of freedom. I could break any rules. I could just live outside the bounds of normal society and it didn't matter and no consequences would ever hit me. And over time in my adulthood, I've realized that that was because I felt like I didn't matter and that I was just utterly inconsequential and nobody would notice and nobody would care. And so I was free to do whatever I wanted. And at that time, what I wanted, blossoming little alcoholic drug addict that I was, um, was to obliterate myself and pursue oblivion doggedly and insatiably. And I did. I um, moved to the nearest city and like tried community college, but, you know, homework really got in the way of my drug use. So school had to go. And I decided that the most money a young woman could earn keeping all her clothes on was bartending. And it also was a pretty clever rebrand for alcoholism, I thought. Then I, you know, I wasn't an alcoholic. I just was very knowledgeable about my craft. (laughs) I could tell you anything about any of the bottles on my back bar because I had drank all of them um, at one point or another. And so I channeled all of my energy into this new career and I was a very fancy cocktail bartender and I worked at very well-known bars and, you know, I was just also a big old nerd and this was a way to use my brain and things. Oh my goodness. I still have so much time left. I guess I'll tell you some war stories or glory stories or however you want to think about them. Um, One of my favorites (laughs) is the first day that I ever did speed. And I know that this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I did drugs just like the founders of AA did. Um, And so I talk about them because I think that I am more relatable for having multiple facets to my story and who am I to decide in which ways I wouldn't be able to be of service or to be relatable. So first day I ever did speed, the uh, solid form of alcohol, I just marched all around the state that I lived in. I felt like surely this was the answer and I felt happy finally and like I could accomplish anything. I was 16 years old and I just like was triumphantly parading around the state and eventually caught a bus to the capital city and walked around the mall, like every single floor. And (laughs) Dunkin' Donuts that summer had these neon green caffeinated slushies, Sobe Energy Culottas, and that was all I consumed the entire day was speed, these green caffeine slushies, and a lot of cigarettes. And I caught the bus home, and my mom was going to be picking me up, and I started to not feel so hot, and I was getting just greener and greener around the gills, you know, the same like neon green color that these culottes were. And the bus was getting closer and closer. And I was like, like taking the real, like, all right, get it together, deep breaths. 
and my bus stop was in sight and I projectile vomited all over the back of the bus. And because that was the only thing that was in my system, (laughs) I was just this like 16 year old girl with a mohawk and long hot pink fingernails, just like spewing this green alien sputum all over public transportation. (laughs) And the woman across the aisle just looked at me and was like, do you want to get off the bus now? (laughs) And I got off the bus and I, my mom was picking me up and I climbed into the trunk of her minivan because I knew she would smell the cigarettes on me. It just, it was so unmanageable so fast. And that was nine years before I got sober. And so you can imagine how much I devolved from that point. Um, When I was 21, I started doing I mean that's not true I started doing hard drugs when I was 16 I really accelerated my drug use when I was 21 and I bottomed out on drugs I think I was 22 when I bottomed out on drugs and I told my best friend that I thought I had a drug problem and that was an interesting thing I never could admit to myself that things were true because I just couldn't live with myself. For better and for worse, I'm the kind of person who I can't deny things to myself. I can't live with myself if there's a truth that I know that is incompatible with my values. And so alcoholism was real fucking uncomfortable, as was this drug addiction that I announced outside of myself. And I remember as soon as I did, I was too afraid to sleep alone in my apartment with all of my drugs and so I just like followed my best friend back to her house and slept on her couch that night and you know like her family and her little sisters woke up and were just like sitting on the couch with me eating cereal the next morning um but so I decided I established for myself that I really couldn't do drugs anymore and I couldn't even really keep to my word on that one and a year later I uh well let me pause really important that happened in that year of my really gnarly drug use was that I had a coworker who was sober. He was one year sober when I met him. And actually our boss was two years sober. And I had never, I went to my first meeting of AA when I was 16 in support of a friend who was trying to get sober. And I remember looking around and it was a women's meeting And there was one woman, and it cracks me up in retrospect because just like our book says in Bill's story, um, there was something about her eyes. She just looked really bright and present and interesting. There's just something about her. And I thought, you know, if I was an alcoholic, I would ask her to be my sponsor. And like, that could have been my first clue. Normies don't sponsor shop if they find themselves at a meeting. Um, but then when I was 21, my coworker was sober and at some point he was a heroin addict at some point he relapsed and I just kept being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I caught him going through my bag, looking for the drugs that weren't there that day. And I was the first person he admitted that he was using heroin again too. And just, there were so many little moments, little points of intersection between our lives where I got to see that he was really in trouble and it was really ugly and really dark but I was unintentionally inadvertently a part of his intervention just like again wrong place wrong time and like I you know I really liked him but we weren't that close of friends that I was like there with his family 
crying and drawing their bottom lines with him. Um, and so after that, I, uh, I would go to meetings with him as like an accountability buddy. And it's strong enough medicine that I caught alcoholism attending meetings with him. And it was interesting because I had this like field guide to the process. And I would say to him, like, you're a heroin addict. Why are you saying that you're Justin and you're an alcoholic? And why are you putting dollars in the basket? And what do you mean? What is 13th stepping? Just like all of these little tidbits and how to's that he could provide for me. Um, and yeah, so I was exposed to AA and then I realized probably because of my immersion in the fellowship that I qualified and I was eligible for the spiritual solution available to us. And I remember they, uh, Justin introduced me one day and they gave me a newcomer packet and I was like, no, 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 like if I never open it, it doesn't count and it doesn't apply. And so I shoved it in the back of my bookshelf and I found it like, I don't know, eight to 10 months later when I was cleaning my room and just like immediately recycled it, just like hot potatoed it right into the trash. I was like, if, yeah, I'm just never, I'm never going to look at it. I'm going to pretend that that never happens. And then it doesn't count. Um, And so I realized I was a drug addict, tearfully admitted as much to my best friend, tried as hard as I could to stop doing drugs, thought that Adderall didn't count until I was bartending on New Year's Eve, which is like, you know, tax day for an accountant. New Year's Eve as a bartender is the biggest day of the year. And I did a bunch of Adderall and I was awake for like 36 hours and um, took the train to visit my boyfriend who lived like an hour away and started coming down on the train. No one knew where I was. They couldn't rouse me at the terminal station. The police detained me, threw me in the emergency room where I came to, called my terrified boyfriend, my poor sweet normie boyfriend, who hurdled, I didn't even know which emergency room I was in. They had a guard posted outside my room because I guess I was trying, I was probably trying to fight or flee. Um, she told me where I was. He came and they, you know, I kind of just looked like someone who partied a little too much on New Year's Day, which was not inaccurate, but they realized that this sober companion had arrived and they um, discharged me to his care and I was so afraid. And so I remember just sobbing in his arms in the hospital because I knew exactly what I was and it had started to catch up with me. And I went to a meeting by myself for myself, I think the next day um, as a as a demonstration of how seriously I was taking this. I went to one meeting and I look back on it now and it cracks me up because our population in AA swells a little bit right after the holidays. Everyone has kind of a rough go of it and they start checking out meetings and then the numbers dip a bit. And I was one of those people <laughs> who had a weird New Year's and showed up to a meeting about it. And I shared and a young woman my age came up to me after the meeting and said, hey, thank you so much. Introduced herself to me and said, do you want to have you had dinner? Do you want to go get some food with me? And I remember being like, no, 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 no. I know exactly what you're trying to do. Absolutely not. And I went to the bar where my boyfriend worked and I didn't drink for like three days, but I could not stop smoking the flower form of alcohol. And shortly thereafter, I started drinking again. But that really had cemented in my brain that I couldn't do drugs except for weed. And so I was, quote unquote, just going to drink and smoke weed and hold it to that. And three years later, after that event, I guess two and a half years later, I was drinking a fifth of liquor a day. I was smoking an eighth of weed a day. 
I threw up every day of my life. My body was too weak to walk upstairs. I began to feel like I was probably going to die pretty soon. And in fact, some nights overnight, I was afraid that I would die in my sleep and I would text my friends and give some like vaguely threatening alarm like, hey, I'm not doing so hot. Would you check up on me in the morning? Because I thought if I died in my room, I wanted someone to get my body before it decomposed. And it was pretty bleak. If that account doesn't relate as much, I would just stare into my eyes in the middle of the night, just into the black pupils of my eyes. And I remember thinking, I don't know what we're going to do. I know exactly what this is, and I have no idea what we're going to do about it. And I mean, the obvious answer is stop drinking, but you may as well have asked me to live the rest of my life underwater or only speak Finnish or I like I just had no idea how something like that would be possible and I started to feel just this tremendous gap between myself and functional society I remember watching tv once and the actor in the commercial bent over to pick up a child and I remember thinking like oh I could never do that like I was too hung over and sick all the time to invert my head. I couldn't bend over. I couldn't walk upstairs. I couldn't hold a job. Um, I was a bar drinker pretty much exclusively because my financial priority was drinking. And so I never owned a car, which also just seemed prudent. So I wouldn't cop a DUI or 12. And so I could only ever bring home from the liquor store what I could carry on my person. And then I would drink all of that. And so also working in bars, I knew all the bartenders in town and man, it's so funny. I, uh, the last time I was a 45 minute speaker, I ran out of time. I got to get sober. Um, yeah, I drank in bars. I drank a lot working in bars, drinking in bars meant that my liquor consumption was unlimited, free, often encouraged. And my life was really bad and I was going to die. And what happened was, um, Justin died. I woke up one day and plastered all over Facebook was a bunch of RIP, RIP, I can't believe it. He never quite got sober ever again, and he fatally overdosed on heroin. And it had been a bad year. I had hit a series of successively lower interpersonal, financial, sexual, moral, logistical bottoms, just worse and worse and worse. And when Justin died that one landed in my heart differently and more gravely than any other sorry turn of events that year had. And I knew that I was next. And I tried for the first time in my entire life to quit drinking that day. And I made it nine days. And on the ninth day, I heard someone say once that sobriety without recovery is like holding your breath. And all day, every day, I was just like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to have a drink. And I was like spitting out my straw tastes of the cocktails I was making at work. I was really giving it my best try. On the ninth day, I drank again and everything sped up. And I uh, permanently injured my right shoulder a couple of weeks thereafter, which put me out of bartending forever. And then I was like working as a host at the bars that I had been a bartender and drinking whiskey in the host stand. Like it just got really fucking sad and small. And I don't really know exactly. So like that's this is kind of what happened is I got sober and I showed up to AA. But to be most granular about it, I couldn't really tell you 
what exactly happened, but I woke up one day and I was done and I have not had a drink since. Um, it was a really bad hangover. I was like, you know, gripping the toilet bowl, praying um, that if I lived through the hangover, I would go to a meeting that night. And I did. And I went to a meeting the next day and the day after that. And, you know, I was so sick. My body was so corroded from the way I had been treating it for years um, that you would have not been able to predict that I would have any motivation to do anything. But I really came into AA feeling like I had been shot out of a cannon because I knew that I was going to die. And for a long time, I felt like, well, it wasn't a very long life, but it wasn't a very happy one either. So I guess call it even. Um, but one day something shifted and I realized that when I died, because it was looming, I was, everything about me was going to die with me and that maybe I had some potential. And then if I died, everything about me, which also died would be depriving the world of whatever I could do for it and whatever I, whatever good I could give to the world and that that wasn't fair. And that wasn't my right. And so I woke up one day and I never drank again. And I just like careened into Alcoholics Anonymous and I was as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as only the dying can be because I was fucking dying and I didn't want to anymore. And I just begged everybody. I mean, I begged everybody to tell me what they were doing and they told me to come back next week and set up the chairs or be the greeter or make the coffee. And they remembered my name the second time they saw me. And I felt really welcome and really like my presence was appreciated, but I wasn't that nice. <laughs> I was so angry. I had been such a hard drinker for such a long time. And the only thing that had changed about me overnight was that I didn't drink anymore, that I just would raise my hand in meetings and like yell at everybody. Um, and it took a really long time and I dried out really slowly, but I have grown up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I worked all 12 steps and I still worked in bars my first year. Um, I do want to say I wasn't sober from my very first meeting. I still smoked pot for my first 47 days in Alcoholics Anonymous. If that's your story, it just means you qualify for your place in the rooms, you know? Um but I did December 15th, 2015. I haven't I haven't needed to change the way I feel since that day. And I have been entirely physically sober since then. Um, I worked in bars my first year sober. And then I got a job delivering vegetables for an organic farm, which I never would have thought I had a job like that. But it was one of the best jobs I ever had. And then around the one year mark, I got a job I wasn't looking for managing a women's rehab Um I got sober in Oakland. That job moved me to San Francisco. I enrolled in the community college there and I was there for three years. Um, when it was time for me to leave the rehab, I wasn't really sure how I was going to be able to afford to live in the Bay Area on my student income of zero dollars. And a former chemistry professor of mine rented me a room in his house for a hundred dollars a month. Like if I had gone looking for a miracle like that, I wouldn't have been able to source it for myself. And I lived there for two years and I applied all over the country to transfer because I had this like wacky story and I had been getting really good grades and I'd been volunteering and I ended up getting into this insanely fancy school 
where I'm finishing up my undergrad. And about a month ago, I found out that I've been accepted to medical school. And that piece was something that I thought for a long time I would keep anonymous in the rooms and that in my professional life, I would be anonymous with my alcoholism and in my metabolic life, I would be anonymous about the fact that I was studying to become a doctor because there's a lot of stigma about physicians and recovery. And there's actually a lot of really ridiculous, I don't know, there's not a diversion program for doctors. And so there's just a lot of overhead and a lot of whatever. I had a lot of fear. Um, and I got to talk to a doctor about it recently who helped me arrive at the solution that really unlocked this puzzle in my heart. And she she shared that I would probably be a more trustworthy physician, that I would be a more palpably trustworthy doctor in the room with a patient if I was not living my own life in secret. And that's not to say that I'll walk into a patient's room and say, my name's Dr. Alice, I'm an alcoholic, but I totally agree with what she was saying that if I am living my life in an integrated and authentic and unafraid way I will be a member of my community and a steward of the health and well-being of others in a way which seems believable and so I really <laughs> I got stuck in um, my drunkalog a little bit and I'm a couple minutes to being out of time um but I hope that my sped up version doesn't discount the fact that my life feels like just, I mean, it sort of feels magic to me. And it also sort of feels like surely I must be making it up at this point. Like my glow up has been so severe that either surely this has got to be a hallucination or that was all a bad dream. Like these, these two disparate lives cannot possibly exist in the same lifetime, but when people say, oh, people don't really change, not really. I just think for sure they must not know any alcoholics because we change utterly. We transform entirely. And today, you know, I have these fancy cash and prizes and successes, and some of them are even name brand. But the best parts of my life are the fact that I am a trustworthy person and my threshold for joy is so low. And I just feel like at my best, I am just along for the ride and the path forward paves itself in front of me as I walk it. And really all I want for the rest of my life is more of this. And with my one remaining minute, I want to say, initially when I was asked to do this chair, I had some fear about being recorded, both because I knew I was going to talk about becoming a doctor and also because just put most bluntly, there are people in the world that I don't want to have access to me. And I reconsidered because when I was driving the vegetable truck my first year sober, I used to listen to this podcast. And how the hell could I possibly deprive another person of what I had enjoyed listening to speaker tapes from people in my community talking about how they had gotten sober and remained in community with each other? And also because my third step is not worth its salt if I am looking at the fine print on my life with a magnifying glass and being hypervigilant in maintenance of my own safety. It's just not my job anymore. And thank God for that, quite literally. 
And now I want to read out of the book to keep true to the fact that it's not my opinion anonymous. This is out of the last chapter in the first 164 pages titled A Vision for You. And it's one of my favorite parts in the book, but I say that about most parts in the book. So we have shown how we got out from under. You say, yes, I'm willing, but am I, can to be, am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? Yes, there is a substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. How is that to come about, you ask? Where am I to find these people? You are going to meet these new friends in your own community. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds. High and low, rich and poor, these are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties, for you will escape disaster together and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. It may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respected, and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. I um, could be good for the rest of my life and never have paid back the debt of gratitude I have to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am very much a person raised by her proverbial village, and thank you all so much for being here with me tonight. <laughs>